Our epistle reading and sermon text for today comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. St. Luke's, you have already fulfilled this word from God. How do I know this? Well, I am vicar number 40. That means you've sat through the failings and bared with the failings of 40 different vicars. You've seen mics turned off. You've seen readings forgotten. You've seen spots lost in sermons. (laughs) You've seen it all. And I'm sure you've seen a myriad of well-intended but ultimately ineffective and confusing sermons, which hopefully won't include today's. But I'm sure you always maintained that we did a great job. You came up to us afterwards and gave us a pat on the back and an attaboy. Now, I've met your last four vicars, and I've heard from all of you that they were wonderful and did a great job. And so I know Hayden, I know Sam, I know Joel, and I know Matthew, and I can attest to their skills as future and current preachers as well. But I am living proof that streaks were made to be broken. (laughs) For those of you counting down, you only have to bear in my failings for another 43 weeks or so, so strap in. Now, all jokes aside, you have been given the opportunity as a congregation to bear in the failings of those who wish to gain experience, those who wish to be vicars and pastors. You have helped them and bared in their failings. However, the church at Rome, they're dealing with some different issues than vicars, and we hear in chapter 14 about their specific issues as a congregational body. One of the main issues is that they need to decide whether they can eat food that was previously considered to be unclean under Jewish law. So you have these two sects forming within the church. You have the weaker Christians, and you have the stronger, more mature Christians. And the weaker Christians are new to faith. They're Jewish converts. And so they know the old law, and they know that you're not supposed to eat certain foods. And so they see the stronger Christians who have been told that it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, but rather what comes out of it. So they know that food doesn't make you unclean, and they're eating whatever they want. So then you have these weaker Christians judging the stronger Christians. Well, these stronger Christians feel unfairly judged, and so they start to despise and hate the weaker Christians. So you've got this calamity forming inside the church at Rome. 
Now, Paul, he appears to solve this issue in chapter 14, but the section of text that we're going to study today is an even more sure solution rooted in Christ that Paul gives us. He says in verse 1, do not be a stumbling block to these new Christians. He makes us know very clearly that the onus and the responsibility is on the stronger Christians. He says it's your job not to trip them up with anything. But what does that look like? What does it mean to be a stumbling block? Well, for those of you who are unaware, St. Luke's has a preschool ministry. And as vicar, it is one of my duties to help with Carline there once a week. It is far and away the cutest duty that I have assigned to me as a vicar here at St. Luke's. And what the job mostly consists of is I go up to the car and I wait for their mom or dad to come unbuckle them from their car seat. Then I take them by the hand and I walk them into the gated school area. Now, these children are not always so keen to walk with a stranger into an unfamiliar place. And so they're sad and they're scared and they're confused. The last thing that I would do is stick out my leg and trip them. I would send them running back to their mom and dad in the car in fear. And so in my mind's eye, I imagine that the church at Rome is kind of like this metaphor. You see, the car with mom and dad is the old life that these new Christians are used to. That's where they're comfortable. That's what they've been raised in. That's what they know. The teacher and the vicar who grab them by the hand, these are the mature Christians who are supposed to walk with them and teach them in the new life. And they walk with them to the gated school area, which is eternal life. But for these new Christians, the thing that's sending them running away in fear after being tripped is unclean food. Now, by and large, what food people eat is not something that trips us up in our faith life very often anymore. Perhaps unless you're one of those people who has a strong opinion about pineapple on pizza. And I should tell you, Pastor Tide calls that an abomination. So, you Hawaiian pizza lovers, take that up with him. But what are our stumbling blocks? Well, let's go back to the image of Vicar at Carline. I would not open a car door and tell a child a lewd joke that I had heard on a Netflix comedy special the night before. I would not open a door and berate my, the child that I'm helping with my political opinion of the day. I would not show up to Carline with whiskey on my breath. And I would not flirt with a female teacher just because my wife isn't there. I would want to be a good example for these children because they're young and impressionable. Now, hopefully these all seem like obvious things of what not to do. But... Now I want you to imagine these same examples just in your everyday life as an adult. You know, I think most of us forget that as Christians, people are always looking to us to see what kind of an example we are going to give. You know, there's other parents at your child's sporting event who are watching you berate the ref and throw water bottles on the ground. There are those who are testing the faith of Christianity who will see you flirting with somebody who's not your spouse, both, both men and women. There are those who are new to the faith who will see you at the bar or a restaurant, perhaps drinking too much, and will write off Christianity as just like everyone else, doing whatever they want. There are those at your work who are unbelieving and will judge Christianity based on the crass jokes that you make that make them uncomfortable. 
uncomfortable. Whether you know it or not, you have your own preschoolers that see you every day. You might just call them boss or friend or cousin. Your example matters. And Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2 to bear in the failings of the weak, not to please yourself, but rather to please and build up your neighbor. Too often we please ourselves, supposing that our example and our witness just doesn't matter and that no one's watching. This is a staple of a sinful human condition. We get a desire or a craving and we have to fulfill it right away, right away. And sometimes it's not even a sinful thing. For instance, it's not a sin to want an alcoholic beverage, but if you invite over your Baptist or your Mormon neighbor for dinner, you should not go to the fridge and grab a beer. If you have a friend who particularly despises foul language, you should be extra sure to watch your tongue. If you have a coworker who's Muslim, you should not schedule meetings during their required prayer time so as to force them to choose between their religion and their work. Essentially, what I am saying is bear in your neighbor's failings so as to make our faith palatable to the unbeliever and the new believer. Now, if we are imagining the young in faith or the unbeliever as a preschooler, sometimes we know that young kids, preschoolers, they have trouble with food sometimes. And as a parent or guardian, you have to find tactics to make the food more palatable. Two that I've seen are the, the airplane method, you know what I'm talking about, with the spoon, or the choo-choo train method. These are near and dear to me because this is how Alyssa gets me to eat vegetables at home still to this day. So we, essentially what, what I'm trying to say here is that you can do the same thing. Your example can make unbelievers and new believers be drawn in and comforted instead of driven away. It's the Christ within you that these people need. So let Christ come out and be evident in your actions and your example. Verse 2 says, to please your neighbor for his good so that you build him up. And what does that mean? And what does this entail? This is a step beyond helping, certainly. This means to go out of your way, to go above and beyond, and to be above reproach. Helping your neighbor is bringing him dinner because he lost his job. But pleasing your neighbor, that's bringing him steak and lobster because it's a Tuesday. It looks a little bit different. It's the call of the strong in faith to seek and find ways to actively please and build up our neighbors, those who are weaker in the faith. The metaphorical preschoolers around us will be drawn in and they'll be comforted by your example. Now jumping to verse 6, we hear Paul tell the church at Rome to glorify God with one voice. What does this look like? What does this look like? I want you to look right here. The elements of Holy Communion. Now I want you to look at the back at the baptismal font. And then look at each other's faces. Unity is found in the body and blood of our Lord. Unity is found when you are baptized into one family in Christ at that baptismal font. Unity is found in the creed the confession that you make every Sunday, and it's found when you lift up your voices together to worship the King. What I'm saying is you already have unity in the church through Christ, but now you need to show that. You need to make that evident to the world through your example. 
Don't go online and infight with your Christian brothers about doctrine, who's right and who's wrong, who's better, who's worse. Instead, when you look at each other, see yourself and see Christ because you are one body with everybody in here, unified under his body and his blood. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3, to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. This is sound advice to be the right example. Always treat others as even better than you want to be treated. I guess that would be the platinum rule instead of the golden rule. Moving to verse 7, Paul tells us to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. But how does Christ welcome us? Well, we read two weeks ago in Matthew 18 about how Christ welcomes us into the kingdom, kingdom of God like little children, children who are meek and in need of help. So welcome each other by lifting one another up to please each other in an attitude of humility and remembering that you are all unified in Christ. Welcome each other as if you were all children. Who among us would be mean to a child? Who among us would harm or set a poor example for a child? I want you to view one another as children, just as you view those outside of the church as children. Love one another with humility and care in your heart, and do not take pride in your superior knowledge or practice as Christians. Don't infight about who's right and wrong. Do not judge or slander those who worship in a contemporary way versus a traditional way or or vice versa. Remember, you have been made one in Christ. Now, you heard me say at the beginning of the sermon that it's the responsibility and that the onus is on those strong Christians. I now declare unto you the good news that your work doesn't matter. Not for salvation, at least. Not for salvation. We find in verse 3 that it is actually Christ who never pleased himself. It is Christ who perfectly welcomed others. It's Christ who always set the right example. Always, always, always. He set the right example from his lowly birth in Bethlehem to his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. He never, ever failed to set the right example. He never failed to welcome non-believers like tender children. And he always treated others as if they were better than himself. Somehow, even though he was the perfect almighty God and we were miserable sinners. And he treated others as if they were better than himself. Think about that. Christ's life is so much more than an example, guys. Christ's life is not a moral precedent for you. It's a promise, an active and living promise that the work for your salvation was completed for you before you were even conceived. The work is done on your behalf. You are saved. Your right example is merely a joyous response to Christ's perfect fulfillment of this promise. In verse 4, we're told that the law was written in former days for our instruction, but that instruction has been fulfilled in Christ alone. What was once a death sentence is now the free gift of eternal life because of Christ's completion 
of the law on our behalf, his perfect, unfailing example. Finally, we get to the crescendo of this text in verse 5. And in verse 5, we get just a little taste of what eternity is going to look like. Unity and harmony with each other and with Christ. No evil, no malice, no hatred, no failures, and no more bad examples. Only harmony granted to us through the God of endurance and encouragement. Now, in the meantime, you have the Holy Spirit. He continues to call, gather, enlighten, and sanctify us as one body in Christ. It is He who encourages and sustains you. And it is by His work alone that you have ever been able to set any kind of a right example for Christ. Do not fear about where you have failed to be perfect in your example or your witness, because the work of salvation, it's always been God's. Always. It's never been in your hands. God alone grants you unity, harmony, peace, and eternal life. So leave the guilt of your bad examples at the foot of the cross, because Christ has already been reproached for them. The reproaches of those who reproached us fell on him on the cross, and the work is done. Where your example has failed, Christ's promise fulfills. Amen. The weekly awakening question for this week is, how does Jesus' example give you endurance and encouragement to welcome others?